I'm going to go ahead and read our text. It comes from John 4, 1 through 26. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one now... I'm sorry, the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Thank you, Amanda. Good morning, Redeemer City. How are you? Good. You guys win. That was the best response. Mediocre still, but best response I've received. <laughs> East side is the worst. They're the worst. Uh, but I, that they are the people that I have the loving joy of pastoring. And so we are also your little sister. That's how I've described uh, us a couple of times this morning to people. Um, and so I don't know if you've seen any of these memes that float around about like, oh, our oldest child was just such a joy. We thought we'd have a second. And then it's like this wrecking ball that comes through. I don't know if we're quite that bad, but we like to, uh, we like to challenge you guys. And so one of the things I love about this Madison Multiply series is just it puts us in front of one another. Uh, you guys, in a new, very hopefully New Testament feeling kind of a way, um, get to have a report this morning from Eastside Church. And, um, and I get to have, Nate gets to get a report from Eastside Church, rather, and I get to kind of get a report from Redeemer City. Not that we would, each one of us talk, but just how you are, how it feels to be here, the, the, the worship that we had, the, the unity of the Spirit that we experienced together this morning. And so I am just beyond excited that we do this series. I think it's so good. And last year when I was here, I challenged you guys to church plant off. And so I'm back to renew the challenge. And I threw it down to the vine too. I said, you guys have been sitting on your butts for too long. We got to plant more churches in this city. And so let's just be praying about that. Let's be praying about how God would have us to plant churches and what that looks like. It's going to require sacrifice. It's going to be hard. There's going to be gospel goodbyes involved. And um, that's really good because the good news of the gospel, as Amanda shared it with us, is Jesus' perfect life, sinless death, and glorious resurrection provides a way uh, for us to be with one another for forever, right? 
And so we goodbye for now, um, but we get to be together forever. And so it's good. We benefit so much as pastors, just being in relationship as churches. And we love when that spills over into things like the worship night and things like the, the women's conference and the men's nights and things like that. And so when those pop up, just make space for them. Those of you who've been to them just know how encouraging they are. And uh, I'm looking forward to September. It's going to be good to be all together after the craziness of the school year kind of starting. So this morning we are going to be in John 4, 1 through 26. So if you want to turn there in your Bibles, you can. It's going to be on the screen as well um, as we walk through. Uh, Amanda, thank you for reading that. Um, and so our family, so I've got, I, I failed to bring a picture, I'm sorry. I, my wife Nikki and I have been married 15 years this summer. We have five kids. Um, Quinn is 10. She turns 11 in December. Nora is 9. Graham is 7. Uh, Avery is 5. And Reed is 2. And uh, they're a joy. Um, we love camping. Just got back from a week of camping. Uh, I take the kids out at the end of every summer. We call it the Dad Venture Camping Trip. We homeschool our kids. So Nikki gets the house to herself uh, to just get ready for the school year. And we love to just be out in nature. And uh, one of the things I love about my wife is she just has a sense of wonder and awe at the things that God has created. And she has infused that into our kids. And so we just love to to crawl around in the woods and, and have a good time. But when we can't do that, one of the things we love to do is watch like nature shows. You know what I'm talking about, like Blue Planet, um, Planet Earth, you know, the OG kind of original one. Um, and recently we watched America the Beautiful on Disney Plus, which is great. I highly recommend it. And it's great because you see these stunning landscapes, these beautiful, intricately woven pictures, right, that God's just created. And then not only are these static kind of landscapes there, but you have the vibrant, dynamic life that God has just put in to this world for us to be in awe over. And inevitably, at some point in time, there's uh, this one kind of scene emerges out of these shows, and it, it comes around the watering hole. Do you know what I'm talking about? And so you've got the predators, they've got first rights to the watering hole because they've got bigger teeth, and they're usually faster. And so they're at the watering hole, but then you have kind of filling in around them as thirst promotes uh, courage, kind of the prey, you know, aspects of, of species. And there's this kind of diversity amongst the animals that shows up at the watering hole, but there is definitely a hierarchy. And you see it when the dry season comes. Because when the dry season comes and water is scarce, the prey and predators don't go to the watering hole together. There's not enough to go around, and the predators lock up the watering hole. John 4, 1 through 26 tells the story of a woman who is coming to the town watering hole to draw water for her and her household. She has no position. She's poor. And as we'll find out, because of her past and present, she's a socio-religious outcast in her city. Because of all of this, she's forced to come for water when the predators won't be there. Her timing is intentional and strategic. She comes during the hottest part of the day. There's going to be no one there to prey on her circumstances and life choices. No one to speak unkind words that threaten to fully break her thread-thin will. It's not ideal, but the plan has worked so far. But today is different. As she approaches, she sees this strange man sitting at the well. He's not drawing water, he's just sitting there. Her thoughts race, through it, racing through the options just to realize that she really only has one. She has to face this man. She's got to get her household's water, she's got to get home, she's got to get on with the day. And so as she approaches, she realizes there's an even bigger problem than just this kind of lone man, not really sure what he's doing sitting at the well. This man is a Jew. Before we work through this interaction, we need to, to do the backstory here. And so the story takes place in Samaria, right? We, we saw that in the passage. So this woman then is a Samaritan woman. Samaria is this landlocked region within Israel. Israel is the land of the Jews. Galilee is to the north, right? That's where, that's where Jesus comes from. And then Judea is to the south. That's where Jerusalem is. And so Samaria has not always been separate. It's not always kind of been this island. Think like Monona, right? It's like landlocked inside Madison. Um, that's going to get a little south here real quick. But so just we love people from Monona. They need Jesus as well. 
It's not a comment on Mononaites. Anyway, but it's not always been separate. It actually was one time part of the northern kingdom of Israel. And, and Samaria, uh, in Samaria, was the capital city of the northern kingdom, okay? And so the Assyrians captured the northern kingdom. And you can read about this if you're taking notes, 2 Kings 17. You can go there. You can read the story of the Assyrians coming in. They kick out most of the Jews, kill a lot of people, and settle themselves right in Samaria, right? Makes sense. Well, this created intermarriages, which sets up for cultural and, more importantly, religious intermingling. And so this did not create very good blood, so to speak, between Samaritans, as they then became called, and Jews. And so this has been building and building and building all throughout Israel's history up until the time that Jesus is alive and walking the earth. In fact, many people, especially religious leaders, would bypass Samaria altogether. Because the northern kingdom had become a place that worshipped the true God and false idols. The Jews from the southern kingdom treated the Samaritans with disgust. And so for as many reasons as this woman had for not wanting to interact with this rando guy sitting at the well in the middle of the day when nobody else is usually there, this man also has a lot of reasons to not interact with her. But we know that this man is different, right? He's not a typical Jew. This is Jesus of Nazareth. The woman doesn't know that yet, though. Today, she's going to meet Jesus, and we get to watch, and we get to learn how Jesus introduces her to himself. And so we're going to walk through the story and see what happens. I want to make one more comment before we get going. This passage comes on the heels of another not quite as famous passage depicting an interaction between Jesus and a high-ranking member of the Pharisees. Nicodemus comes to Jesus in the middle of the night. He wants to understand more about who Jesus is. Jesus leads him to an understanding that salvation that he is offering is from God. And that even Nicodemus, this expert of the law, is spiritually bankrupt and needy. John ends the retelling of the encounter by quoting one of Jesus' most famous teachings ever, right? We lose Nicodemus because these verses are so popular. You know them. You could probably quote them, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And so John has put these two stories together, right? They're separate in our Bibles by chapter, but these stories are together. He's contrasting something. He's helping us to see something together. And so fresh off the heels of that declaration, we should not be surprised that Jesus is willing to sit here at the well with this woman from Samaria, right? With everything that we just talked about. We shouldn't be surprised. And yet we often are, aren't we? We're surprised by how Jesus interacts with certain kinds of people. But Jesus did not say God so loved the Jews that he gave his only son, which for my guess is everybody in this room is a really good thing. The whole world is the scope of Jesus' mission. And he wants to show us this morning that his heart longs for everyone, everywhere, to be soul satisfied and saved in him alone. And so we're going to work through this interaction to see that only Jesus can satisfy and only Jesus can save and then we're going to try to draw some application out of this of what we can learn from Jesus. So before we go any further, can you pray with me? Well, Jesus, we do want to learn from you this morning. We want to see you for who you are. We want to see ourselves reflected in your word, to see our need. We want to learn from you. Spirit, I pray that you would be at work in our hearts. I pray that we would not leave in the same state that we came in, that we, we would be changed. We would be changed as individuals, whether it be faith for the first time or whether it be a renewed sense of the presence of God in our lives and our need for him. And that as a body, Redeemer City would be strengthened and built up to the mission that you have given her to do in this city and beyond. Jesus, we love you. I'm so grateful to be in your presence this morning. My brothers and sisters join me in saying, Amen. That's all right, you don't do that. That's okay. You get it for next time. John Mayer wrote a song that was on his 2022 album, Heavier Things. It's called Something's Missing. 
The song is full of introspection about this empty feeling that John just can't shake. He runs through things that are true of his life, things that should satisfy him, and yet this nagging feeling that something's missing haunts him. The song's last lines paint this desperate nature of the emptiness that he can't fill. He goes through this list. He says, friends, check. Money, check. Well slept, check. Opposite sex, check. Guitar, check. Microphone, check. This really dates the song. Messages waiting on me when I get home, check. But then it's the last lines of the song that really drive home the desperation that he has. It's a profound statement. He says, how come everything I think I need always comes with batteries? What do you think it means? There's something missing in this Samaritan's woman's life. And even though the two haven't met, Jesus knows her through and through. He made her. He knows her day in and day out life. He knows her schedule. He knows where to find her. He's coming through Samaria at just the right moment to meet her and to change her life. And if we don't see that as a frame to this story, we're going to miss what's happening here. This is not a chance encounter. And so as she approaches him, Jesus engages her and asks her to give him a drink. She is shocked that a Jewish man would ask a Samaritan woman for a drink of water. And she points out, hey, just so you know, do you remember that Jews don't actually associate with Samaritans? Let alone take anything from them. In fact, verse 9 that's in chapter 4, there's a little parentheses there. For Jews have nothing to do with Samaritans. Actually could be translated for Jews do not use dishes that Samaritans have used. So this is literally, literally a taboo encounter that Jesus is inviting her into. And Jesus responds by transitioning the conversation from the physical to the spiritual, just like he had done with Nicodemus, right? He tells her that she need only ask, and he will provide her with living water. But she hasn't followed him. She's not made the shift with Jesus, so she still thinks he's talking about physical water. And she wants to know, hey, well, where do you get this water? It would probably save her some trips to the well. She might even be able to sell some on the side, be less dependent on others, right? Like, hey, could you put this well in my house? It'd be great. It's like the Culligan man of the first century. And Jesus draws her attention to the physical water that's right in front of them. Jesus is so good at this, right? And he tells her that while the water there is temporarily thirst quenching, which like, that's like, yeah, the sun is shining, right? Like we drink and we get thirsty again. Jesus makes these obvious points and then elevates them, right? He's saying, this can't cure thirst, but I can. Jesus cuts to the heart of her search for fulfillment, for, for happiness, for safety, by pulling on the thread of her deepest thirst. And this is what's happening when he tells her to go get her husband. She responds, I don't have a husband. This is what Jesus is after. Her honesty allows him to reveal his knowledge of her. Look at the second part of verse 17 into 18. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. Jesus is raising the objective evidence of her search for the missing in her life. And what he knows and what she acknowledges is that she hasn't been able to find any water that would satisfy in relationships. Nothing that would quench her thirst for very long. And because of our sin, each one of us is like the woman. We're thirsting for something. Some experience, some person, some position or station in life. Something that will satisfy. And yet everything we turn to leaves us empty. Longing for more. Doesn't make a difference who we are. We might even say, sure, of course she's searching for something. I mean, look at her. She's a wreck. But in the last chapter, we saw Nicodemus, right? He's not a wreck. Upstanding religious leader. Top of the top. So why does he come to Jesus? Was it so because he had everything figured out and he needs to school Jesus on some things? Is it so that he can shed light on some teaching that Jesus was a little off on? No. He comes because he's seeking salvation. For years, he'd attempted to satisfy his thirst by keeping the rules, studying theology, helping people, but it wasn't enough. 
It could never be enough. Nothing he or the woman at the well did could ever ultimately satisfy. So the woman asked Jesus, where do you get this living water? Her question is one that every one of us asks at some point, isn't it? Where can I find satisfaction? I think each of us has has asked that even if we don't verbalize it. You might be asking it in your life right now. Man, everything I've got just is not satisfying. How can, I, how can I be satisfied? Our whole life is a pursuit of something to satisfy our thirst, our need, right? Like when a baby is born, if the baby doesn't cry, there's a problem, right? The doctors get worried. And so from our very first breaths, we're expressing need, need. I have need, I long for something that I don't have and can't make for myself. And whether we're a homemaker, a vice president of a big company, a teacher, a nurse, an engineer, an entrepreneur, we we make decisions and we're hoping that there will be some return of satisfaction. And the answer to the question that's aching inside of each of us is actually in Jesus' initial response in verse 10. Take a look. Jesus answers her, he says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. We find the living water by coming to Jesus and asking him for it. Jesus is the only source of satisfaction for our weary souls, friends. Jesus clarifies that this is a universal human problem. It's not just a problem for a woman who's had five five divorces and is currently living with a man unmarried. If you look at verses 13 and 14, Jesus says to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give him will never be thirsty again. Jesus is showing her the least satisfying thing in her life because he knows her. And he does this to give her hope that the rest of her life could be satisfying if her deepest thirst was quenched for good. And that's why he tells her in verse 14, the water I give you, the water that I give to the one who asks me, will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The promise of living water is written throughout the whole story of the Bible. In fact, at Eastside, next week, we're starting a fall series called The True Story of the Whole World. That's our Bible. That's what it, that's what it says from cover to cover. It exposes this deep thirst that we have as human beings. And with it, we see over and over again God's people rejecting the living water, the emptiness of their seeking of satisfaction apart from God. The prophet Jeremiah spoke God's word to the people of Israel in Jeremiah 2.13, and, and he said, for my people have committed a double evil. They have abandoned me, the fountain of living water, and dug cisterns for themselves, cracked cisterns that cannot hold water. God's chosen people had the fountain of living water with them. Their thirst could be quenched, their souls satisfied through this real relationship with God. And yet, tragically, they turn their backs on God over and over and over and over again. In fact, basically, from Genesis 3 to the end of the Old Testament is just that on repeat. And then repeated from a couple different perspectives. They rejected God for themselves. They thought they knew the best how to be happy. They wanted to do it their own way. They sought satisfaction in something other than God. And that's the essence of sin, isn't it? From the beginning, pursuing satisfaction in something other than God. And, and I just I want to be clear. Like, God is not opposed to our pursuit of happiness and satisfaction. He, he wants that for us. He created us to pursue genuine happiness, joy, satisfaction. He, he has it. And he wants us to have it in the way that he has it, in him. He designed us to find true delight and satisfaction in him, in him alone. Think about this promise of living water that Jesus is describing to this woman from the perspective of a desert-dwelling people. A dry, dusty land where drought is not just unfortunate but devastating. I've got friends who live in the Phoenix area, and there are some major issues with their water supply. Major issues. 
I don't know if you kept up with the news this week, but Jackson, Mississippi right now has no potable water flowing out of their pipes. And when that happens, it, it, it just reminds us of the need that we have for it, right? We can go without food for a while. There was tons of conflicting reports about how long you could go without water, so I'm not going to quote any source because they apparently do not agree. But you can't go as long as you can go without food. We need it. We're like 80% water. Jesus clarifies with the Samaritan woman that joy and satisfaction can only be found in him because only he can provide clean, pure, abundant, flowing water, the promise of security, satisfaction. C.S. Lewis describes what life apart from Jesus is like, saying it is an ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure. We were at the beach this summer, Devil's Lake, throw the cooler together. We often do like a late, late afternoon run to Devil's Lake. You know, I'll just, I'll get home and just be like, should we? And Nikki now knows, kind of finished my sentence, yes, let's go. So we just, we have a little quick trip order that we pick up. Well, in this, this time, we forgot water bottles. Probably the kids were in charge of bringing the water bottles and that's why we forgot them. But we didn't have water bottles, but we had sparkling water. And it was a hot evening. We were there for many hours. And the diminishing return of thirst quench from carbonated beverage, right? Do you know what I mean? Have you ever experienced this? So the first one is like, oh, it's so good. The second one, it's like, okay, it's a little bit less. By the third, you're like, I don't think this is doing anything. Like, I'm just like, I, I want more because, you know, whatever chemicals they put in it to make it taste like blackberry or whatever, like taste good. But like, it's not satisfying anything. I'm still thirsty. Take a closer look at Jesus' promise to this woman. He tells her that her thirst can be quenched if she turns to him, asks him for a drink, and drinks from the water that he is offering her. And the promise continues, not only is her thirst quenched, but she'll always have access to it. That's something, right? I mean, think about her journey. Her access is in the, the peak heat of the day on her own, no help from what we know, coming out the hottest part of the day to avoid the crowds. And not only could she have water, but she can have it again and again. She'll become able to draw from the living water that is inside of her. And there will be no need to be desperate again. So once we turn to Jesus and discover in him the fulfilling, satisfying source of spiritual nourishment, we can drink of it again and again and again. And of course, this never-ending well that's always fresh in our hearts is the gospel, right? That Jesus died in our place to free us from sin and to bring us into a relationship with God through himself by the power of the Holy Spirit. The gospel is what reminds us of our relationship with God. And Jesus describes this relationship in John 17, verses 22 and 23. They're not going to be on the screen, but just listen. This is Jesus praying. He says, The glory that you have given me, Father, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, and they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. That's an amazing picture, isn't it? That just hits you at a soul-deep level. Communing with, with God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit at a, at a heart level is what we're, we're designed for. Jesus is praying for that for us. And when we admit our lack of satisfaction with sin and turn to Jesus, the gospel well is dug in our hearts and it never runs dry, ever. The presence of the living God is with us and will never be removed. The living water always flows. Do you see? Only Jesus can satisfy. But it's because only Jesus can save. Let's look at the second part of Jesus' interaction with the Samaritan woman from that angle. She knows what Jesus is offering now. But she still hasn't asked him for it. The Samaritan woman's had five husbands. She's living with a man now who by her own admission is not her husband. The hope of the next one will probably work out is likely fading at this point, right? Maybe it's gone completely from her heart. Now, we don't know why he won't marry her. 
People have guessed. I think most of them are wrong. We don't know if he's just not married her yet. He can't marry her because of her reputation or his. But we know, whatever the case, her relationships have been deeply affected by the brokenness of our world resulting from our first parents' rebellion against God. Whether it be through the death of spouse after spouse after spouse, or by the divorcing because of her sin. We, we don't know, but she's been affected. The environment in which her relationships are trying to take root is fundamentally broken and therefore unable to satisfy. The Apostle Paul writes to the church in Rome in chapter 8, verse 22, and he says, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. He's describing the effects of sin on the world. I'm talking about capital S sin right now, right? The sin that just permeates the entire existence of this world and this universe because of Adam and Eve's sin that's been passed on to all of us. Now, I don't have firsthand experience with childbirth. I do not understand it. I've been told it's pretty tough. I witnessed five. It looked really hard. I would die. 100%. 100%. They've done scientific research recently. Redheads either have a super high tolerance for pain or a super low tolerance for pain. Mine is really low. My wife is the strongest human ever created, I think. Whatever that pain is, this woman has been experiencing that. Something like that in her relationships. And she's been experiencing that pain for long enough time to settle for whatever relationship she can get. We all experience this, right? There are the individual sins we commit, but then there's this, this category of this, this large capital S sin all around us due to our rebellion. Rejecting the good design that we should worship God, find satisfaction in Him, and experiencing true lasting peace as a result, and instead... We all find ourselves prone to worshiping almost anything besides God. Our hearts are, are idol factories. I know you're pastors, so I know you're familiar with that analogy, right? That illustration. We seek satisfaction somewhere else, hoping it will last, but knowing deep down it won't, right? We know. We know. Our ability to self-deceive shows up in the way that we so quickly forget the disappointment of the last self-satisfaction attempt as the dopamine hit of our current idol dilates the pupils of our hearts and pushes us forward into the next one. We experience that. I know I have. It numbs the existential pain of living life in this broken world for a minute, but just like this woman, it doesn't last long. Sooner or later, our thirst catches up with us either because of our own sin or because of someone else's sin around us, against us. Redeemer City, our satisfaction problem is ultimately a sin problem. The lack of satisfaction is just a diagnostic, right? Like just last night, I was driving to my friend's 40th birthday party in Milwaukee, and all of a sudden, this I didn't even know it was there in my dashboard. This giant triangle with an exclamation point goes through goes off. It's literally like this big. It's not. It's like this big, but still, it felt giant. There's something wrong. I don't know what it is, but it's a diagnostic. Our search for satisfaction is a diagnostic of our deeper problem. And Jesus doesn't just offer her satisfaction. We would be missing it if we saw that, she, if we think he's just offering her satisfaction. Remember, he's here to change her life, not just give her another fix. He offers her salvation, salvation the only way that it is possible through him, the giver of the living water, because anything less, just, it won't help. It's just a band-aid. Later on, John would write down Jesus' words in John 14, 6, saying, Jesus said to them, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And unfortunately, as I look out across the American landscape, I see the church in America trading that truth, trading it in, trading in this idea that Jesus is the only way for, for a false gospel that actually can never satisfy because it doesn't address our main problem, sin. 
Removing the reality of our sinfulness and our deep need for saving is not the Christian message. It's not the gospel. It's not good news. The good news is that our only hope is through the shed blood of Jesus being received by God as a payment for our sins and for sin. It's not just for our benefit, but it's a repair for the entire brokenness of this world and universe. There's great hope in that. The curse on our world can only be undone by Jesus' shed blood, which means that our satisfaction can only be found following the admission that we are broken sinners. Do you see? That we're broken sinners who try to dig wells instead of seeking the source of the water that will never run dry. My counselor, Todd, who's a really sweet guy, very patient with me, recently shared an illustration with me called the U diagram. You may have heard of it before. If you picture a letter U, it's like the extent of my air drawing skills. And on one side of it, you have, we're just going to use Jesus' death and resurrection, right? Because we're all familiar. You have Jesus' death on one side, you have Jesus' resurrection on the other side. And in the middle, you have Saturday. Now, we have the benefit of looking back through history. We know Saturday was just temporary. But Jesus' followers, even though they probably should have, didn't know that. He told them, but they didn't hear, right? So they experienced the, the bitter bottom of Saturday, right? From Jesus' death all the way down. It's probably almost like dying themselves. And just imagine then how sweet it was as they realized the reality of the resurrection on Sunday morning. Thomas Watson was a 17th century pastor. Highly recommend you read some old dead guys. It's just really good to have, be in the habit of doing that. But Thomas Watson has this, has this quote. It says, Till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. Until we taste the bottom of the you, right? The full effect of sin's fury poured out on a sinless, sacrificial lamb. Until we taste it for what it is, for the evil that it is, Christ will not be sweet. And the pastor at the church that Nikki and I attended after we got married and where I was first on staff down in Kenosha, Wisconsin, added a second line that embodies the hope of the gospel. It says, till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. Till Christ be better, sin will not be beat. Jesus is calling this woman to see that he's better. So much better than all of the relational experiences she could have, even if they were good. The effects of sin wreak havoc on our lives until we truly realize that Jesus is better. Good advice about how to live isn't the gospel. Redeemer City, we are not in the advice business. We're in the news business. It's different. And so as you're together, the best thing that you can give to one another is the gospel. Not a practical tip of how to solve bedtime, which is hard and arduous, and when you get older, it's just late and you're tired, right? It's always hard from what I've heard, parenting, bedtime. I mean, I mean parenting at bedtime. I don't mean your own bedtime. If it's hard, there probably is something you can do practically for that. But like, what is your, what's the go-to? Do we, do we feed one another gospel? Or are we so quick to give advice? Advice that, that fuels the satisfaction attempts that we try as we reach down for our perfected bootstraps and try to pull ourselves through yet another difficult situation. Where worship happens is no longer tied to a physical location in our reality, right? And Jesus and the woman talk about this. They, Jesus is helping her to see, because she raises this issue, right? She's, she's a little uncomfortable, I think, at this point. And she's like, yeah, well, you're t you think you know where water is. Well, we Jews and Samaritans differ on a lot. Like, you guys say Jerusalem's the only place that we can worship, but we say it's Mount Gerizim. Like, how, how do you know that? Do you know the answer? And Jesus flips it again. And he says, no, 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 no. You're again worried about physical realities. I'm telling you, it's a spiritual reality. And the time is coming that whether or not you've got the right location of worship down isn't going to matter. Because God's after your heart. It's worship in spirit and truth that God wants. And so 
as this conversation is going down, I think she is increasingly desiring to exit the space. And so she throws out one last truth like an introvert who's been around people for just too long. And let's face it, some of you are planning your exit from this building right now as we sit here. You're like, well, I'll talk to that person. I can talk to that person. That person's new. I should probably talk to them. And then I'm out of here. And I think, and I love you. I'm not wired like you, but I love you. Married to one of you. She's wonderful. But I think she's gotten to her limit. And so she throws out one last thing. Kind of create a little space. This is verse 25. She says, okay, okay. I know Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. And when he comes, he'll tell us all things, right? And I think this is her way of saying, like, I'm not sure what you're saying is true. And we seem to kind of keep going back and forth. But I do know that Messiah is coming, and we'll get the whole story from him. So maybe we should just let him sort it out, and you should just kind of go on your way, and I'll go on my way. She's ready to be out of this conversation, I think. I don't know, I think. She wants to be on her way back. She is nowhere near ready for Jesus' response. Look at verse 26. I who speak to you am he. All the things that Jesus has been calling her to, all the things that he has been exposing in her, now carry with it a weight that it didn't have before. This isn't just a theological argument. This has been him wooing this woman to see that he is better. He is her Messiah. And just at that moment, the disciples show up and they just like start talking to Jesus right away. Like, what is, what is going on? Why are you here with this woman? And she slips away, leaving her water jar behind. And I think it all clicks in her brain as the disciples are getting there. And I wonder if it's like a scene from a movie, right? Where we kind of, everything around the character slows down and kind of blurs out as some critical plot point is realized. See, she, she has the information to connect the dots. When Jesus says, I who speak to you am he, she knows who Abraham is. The Samaritans had kept the first five books of the Bible. So she knows the promise that God made to Abraham that through him the nations would be blessed. That salvation would come, as Jesus tells her, through the Jews. She knows that when God's people were enslaved in Egypt that he sent a rescuer to lead them out of bondage as a foreshadowing of the ultimate rescuer that he would send to free them from sin. And she has just met her Messiah, her Savior. And as she makes her way back to town, she's aware of her sin, but she is so much more aware of Jesus. John Newton, at the end of his life, says, I, my memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things, that I'm a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. And as this woman comes into town, she does something very counterintuitive. She's like, you'll never believe it. He told me everything that I ever did. That's not what we would probably lead with, right? Like maybe, hey, I think the Messiah is out of the well. Someone should go figure it out. No, she, she's not celebrating. She isn't celebrating just forgiveness from Jesus. She's celebrating the ability to point out how she is so desperate in her need for him. And she can do that because she's found satisfaction in him salvation in him at least the the beginning taste of it she's encountered the ever-increasing joy that comes from realizing how great her sin is and how great her savior is only jesus can satisfy because only jesus can save that's the whole gospel it's the only message worth sharing with others now if you're thinking like okay Ben, this is great. You described this sovereignly appointed encounter that Jesus, who knows everything, had with this woman. Like, what are we supposed to do with that? Well, as we close this morning, I've got three things that I want to submit to you. And the first is just simply here. If, if, If your trust has not been placed in Christ, if your satisfaction is not coming from Jesus, ultimately, If you're digging wells that just seem to dry up over and over and over again, Jesus invites you this morning 
to see that He knows you and He knows what ultimately will satisfy you. And He so wants to be in relationship with you. Second, if your trust has been placed in Jesus, then I think learning evangelism from Him means that you need His heart for not yet believers. See, Jesus understood the Father's heart of compassion. He adopted it as his motivation to bring satisfaction and salvation to those trying to find it in the things of this world. Do you remember the scene in Matthew 9, verse 35 and 36? Jesus is going, went through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. Right? So he's about the Father's business. That's what he says in Luke 4. Right? Opening the eyes of the blind, loosing the chains of the captives. In verse 36, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. The Samaritan woman, along with all of us, fits in this category. Jesus cares deeply for her. He desires to find satisfaction. She desires that she find satisfaction in God alone. How do you see the messy, sinful people in your life? Because my concern is that we don't have a heart of compassion, but we have a heart of self-righteousness towards people. This idea that, well, if they only knew the right way to live, but that's the wrong way to think. That's not Jesus' way to think. He's not here blasting this woman for all the ways that the Samaritans break the law. He's here for her heart. Do you remember? Do you remember that God showed his love for you in that while you were yet a sinner, Christ died for you. Jesus met you at the well of your life. He offered you living water. He offered you satisfaction for the thirstiness of your soul. And he now invites you to do the same for others. But it's going to require you to follow him. And not just follow him in the words of Jesus, but follow him in the ways of Jesus. Follow him to the well of the messy, not yet believing people in your life. And this means you need to be with him. And you need to know him. Because if you don't know him, how can you follow him? Are you willing to follow Jesus, even if it means interacting with today's equivalent of the woman at the well? Remember, we don't know everything about her, but she's there at the way wrong time. Something's up. And are you willing to follow Jesus to those people? So I want you to just jot this down or just think about this. Who has Jesus been placing on your heart as you read the Bible and pray? Who has he been placing on your heart this morning? Turn that into a prayer that he would lead you to where he is sitting waiting for them at the well. And that you might be able to share with them how your thirsts have been satisfied. And the gospel is flowing in you to just satisfy again and again and again as often as you want to draw from its well. Third, when you get to the well, you have to have the resolve to raise the sin that is underlying the satisfaction. Do you see? If we're genuinely modeling the Father's heart for people, as Jesus did for the woman at the well, then what we speak, though a hard message, and in our, in our current cultural moment, this is a really hard thing to do. It must be done, I believe, best done through relationship and best done slowly over time. And best done following an invitation like, like ask, can I, hey, can I, can I share something with you? You can't speak the truth without love. These two are crucially connected. But we can't speak the gospel without talking about sin. Do you see? We can't. Tim Keller talks about the shift over the last 50 years like this. At one point in time, evangelism was simply taking the moral dots that were shared by everybody and helping people to see that Jesus helped them fulfill the dot matrix, right? Do you understand what I'm saying? The shape. It's like Jesus actually helps you take the moral shape that all of us want to take. Those days are gone. They're gone. 
And that means that the previous method of calling people to see their need for Jesus by seeing their sinfulness and the misalignment of their moral dots with his isn't going to work anymore. Our culture no longer takes a similar moral shape. Morality is what you make it. It's completely 100% subjective in our cultural moments. But no matter how the subjective shape of morality embraced by our culture or culture or future cultures is, the reality of the dissatisfaction from digging wells that run dry will always be there. Our role in evangelism is to speak the whole gospel, to show how it's functioned in our lives and how it can function in others' lives. And the beauty is this, the Holy Spirit, he's really good at connecting dots, no matter how abstract they are. All right, one last thing. What is the general shape of your life? Here's here's what I mean. Does the shape of your life look like someone who's been saved and satisfied by Jesus alone? Or is there confusion created for those around you? Those who don't yet believe because of the things that it looks like you find true satisfaction in. There's something really amazing that happens. John records it later on in this chapter in verse 42. The woman comes and and Jesus stays with them for a while. and, and, And then this is written down. They said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard it for ourselves. And we know that Jesus is indeed the Savior of the world. She shared the impact that Jesus had on her life. She shared it all. He told me everything he ever did, I ever did. And caused them to seek and find Jesus for themselves. This is what Christianity is about. Speaking the gospel, living in light of it, until people no longer need to hear it from us because they believe it themselves. Let's do that. And let's depend on Jesus to help us. Would you pray with me? Spirit, we're grateful that you are in our midst. And I just pray that you would lead us into the shape of Jesus and that we would, in ever-increasing measure, look like him, sound like him, interact with people like him. And I just pray that you would help us now as we move through the rest of our worship, as we come to communion, as we sing, as we get ready to be recommissioned as a missional people. Help us to have your heart and your boldness out of our deep satisfaction, salvation in you alone. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.